Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you please to turn in them to our sermon text this morning, which can be found in the Gospel according to John, chapter 19. We're going to be looking at the last five verses of John, chapter 19, verses 38 to 42. You can either use the provided Bible or the handout in your bulletin. The outline on the back, of course, is the text. John, chapter 19, verses 38 to 42. Uh, Let me pray before we begin to, as always, ask for the Lord's blessing upon our time this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you now for your word, your word which is so crucial for us, your word which is the witness that has been left to us by Christ and his apostles and by the prophets of old that tell of all of your wonderful works, that tell of the work of salvation, that tell not only the work of salvation, but what it means for us. So Lord, as we look at this particular passage this morning, as Jesus is laid in the tomb, pray, O Lord, that this word will go forth and accomplish what it's set out to do, Lord, that we will know and understand better what it means that Jesus was laid in the tomb, that he was buried, that he went to the realm of death, as it were, in our place. So Lord, we pray all this and pray for your blessing upon our time. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So John chapter 19, verses 38 to 42. Please give your attention as I read God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word before you. After this, Joseph of Arimathea being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had been yet laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. This light behind me, I feel like I can barely see you, and I'm probably I probably look a little orange or something. I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, I'm not the orange man, no. Um, anyway, there's a saying, of course, that says it's always darkest before the dawn. Right? That that hour before the light starts to break is the darkest part of the night. And that phrase, of course, is used um, commonly. Uh, for us to show that oftentimes we have to go through the hardest of situations before things get better. Sometimes we need to hit that rock bottom before we can bounce back up. And here we see in this passage here, this is the darkest before the dawn, literally and figuratively, as Jesus is laid in the tomb. 
Now we know how the story goes, right? I mean, so this is no spoiler. We know that the very next verse after the passage I read, I read is the first day of the week in which Christ is no longer in the tomb. But before we get to that, before we can talk about the resurrection, before we can get to the hope that it brings and, and the promise that it, 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 uh, it seals to us, we need to look at these five verses in which Jesus is laid in the tomb. This is the lowest of the low for the Christians, right? Again, think, try to put yourself in the perspective, in the, I would say the shoes, but more than likely the sandals. Put yourselves in the sandals of the disciples. This is a man in whom they have placed, placed all of their faith and trust. This is a man in whom they followed for three years, gave up their livelihoods. In fact, if you consider the 12 disciples, you've got a mixture of people who, other than being called by Jesus, probably wouldn't mix together. Zealots with tax collectors, fishermen with noblemen's sons, and so on and so forth. They had placed all of their hope in Jesus. They thought that Jesus was going to be the one who was going to inaugurate the new kingdom, the new uh, ascend to David's throne, kick out the Romans, and here he is, dead. Here he is, laid in a tomb. In fact, of all the disciples, only John is the one that we're told was there at the foot of the cross. And when they lay them into the tomb, none of the twelve are mentioned. It is two secret disciples, as we'll see in a moment. This is the lowest of the low. This is the darkest before the dawn. As we see here this morning, our theme, Messiah enters the grave. He descends into hell. We confess that most mornings here. In our place to defeat sin and death. This was necessary. You're with us for Sunday school. This is a necessary condition for our salvation that Jesus enters the tomb. So we're going to look at this passage in three parts this morning. I know, you know, three-point sermon, but what are you going to do? You're going to, we're going to look at the characters that are here that bury Jesus, uh, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. We're going to look at the act, the actual act of placing him in the tomb. And then we're going to look at the significance of what that means. First, let's look at the characters in verses 38 and 39. Look at those verses again with me, please. After this, that is after the crucifixion, after Jesus gives up his spirit, after uh, Jesus is pronounced dead and his side is pierced with a spear, after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who had first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. So again, these final five verses of chapter 19 begin with that phrase, after this, after these things, indicating that it's connection to the passage before us. This takes place immediately after the death of Christ. And we're introduced to two men, the first of whom is a man named Joseph of Arimathea. 
Now, he is mentioned in all four Gospels. In fact, your Bible might have a heading in front of this passage, and you might even have uh, cross-references or uh, parallel passages. Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23. All four Gospels mention this man, Joseph of Arimathea. In Matthew's Gospel, he tells us that Joseph was a rich man from Arimathea, that he was a wealthy man who had become a disciple of Jesus. Mark's Gospel mentions that Joseph was a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God. So here you have a member of the Jewish ruling class who is in his heart waiting for the kingdom of God, waiting for the the consolation of Israel, waiting for the Messiah. Luke's gospel adds that he was a good and just man who had not consented to their decision indeed. If you remember, uh, Jesus, John's Gospel doesn't mention this, but Jesus was dragged before uh, the, the court, before the Jewish council, and he was tried in a kangaroo court style in which they brought witnesses who bore false witness and said things that Jesus didn't say or took out of context Jesus, things Jesus said and did. And the council then voted to have him crucified. But Luke tells us that Joseph, being a member of the council, did not consent to that. John here just simply mentions that he was a disciple of Jesus. But he adds this phrase, but secretly for fear of the Jews. Why secretly? Well, if you remember in John chapter 9, we looked at that some, some time ago, John chapter 9. That was the story of the man who was born blind that Jesus then healed. And then when that news got out, that man was brought before the Jewish high court and was asked, who healed you? And the reason why there was a big deal is because, as always, Jesus kind of did these healings on the Sabbath day. So they were like, who healed you? And he says, well, you know, I don't know. I was blind. I couldn't tell you who healed me. I couldn't see who it was. All I know is that somebody named Jesus came up to me, put mud on my eyes, and I could see. And the Jews were not impressed by that answer, so then they call his parents in. And if you remember, his parents said, ask him. He is of age. They didn't want to say anything. And the reason they didn't want to say anything is because they feared the Jews. What did they fear? They feared being excommunicated. They feared being kicked out of the, uh, out of the congregation. They feared being disowned, to be cast out, to be considered non-Jewish. That's the point. Joseph was a disciple of Jesus secretly because he feared what the Jews would do if they found out. Now we're told in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that he came in the evening, which fits with the time frame, right? Jesus would have been hung on the cross from noon until three. Darkness would have covered the land. And then before the Sabbath, because you had to do it before uh, the evening, because that evening would have been the day of preparation of the Sabbath. Before the Sabbath comes, uh, we were told that they came uh, to remove the body. They had to remove the body before the Sabbath because you couldn't have anything dead hanging around. It would have made the entire Sabbath unclean. 
Now, Jesus, though he's dead, he was still considered a Roman prisoner. So we were told here that, that Joseph goes and asks Pilate permission to remove the body. And of course, jo- uh, Pilate uh, agrees to this, and then Joseph takes the body down. So that's Joseph. Now we're also introduced to Nicodemus, or I should say reintroduced to Nicodemus. We've seen Nicodemus before. Now unlike Joseph, who's mentioned in all four Gospels, but only at this point in the Gospel, Nicodemus is only mentioned in John's Gospel, but he's mentioned three times. John, in fact, here says, in case you're not sure who this Nicodemus guy is, he was the one who at first came to Jesus by night. You have to remember, this would have been uh, written, of course. John wrote this down, but it would have been read to people. So they would have had their own Bibles and they could look at John chapter 3 and find out who Nicodemus was. So John reminds his readers, this Nicodemus, this is a guy who came to Jesus before. He came to Jesus at night in John chapter 3. Why at night? Well, Nicodemus, again, was a member of the ruling council. He didn't want it to be known that he was coming to seek Uh, to ask a question to this uh, itinerant Jewish rabbi. But it's interesting to see Nicodemus' progression. I mentioned this when we looked at John chapter 3. This would have probably been going on two years or so ago. How he comes to Jesus at night. And, And it's not just that he came at nighttime, which he did. But I think John is using that phrase night to express that Nicodemus was still in his mind Darkened. He had not yet believed in Jesus. He had not yet come to faith. And that's evidence when you see the conversation and, and uh, Jesus answers a question that Nicodemus doesn't even ask, but is on his heart. How does one enter the kingdom? He just comes and says to Jesus, we know you're a good teacher. We know you've done many things and so on and so forth. And, and, Nic- and Jesus says, in order to see the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, how did you know I was thinking that? (laughs) Probably. How did you know I was thinking that? But when he says that, he's like, what do you mean born again? What does that mean, Jesus? I can't enter into my mother's womb as an old man to be born a second time. And then Jesus goes on in a long diatribe there, a long dialogue to speak to him and tell him that faith is, that this is the work of the Spirit and that you need faith. And faith is the one that will uh, see that you do not face death, but you will have eternal life. You must look to the Son, the one who came down from heaven, the one who came down to do the work of the Father. That's the one you need to turn to. And you need to be born again in order to do that. The next time we see... Nicodemus is in the end of John chapter 7. Again, John chapter 7. That's the time where Jesus is there in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. And he says there, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me, and out of his heart will spring rivers of living water, fountains of living water. And then after all of that, the the council gathers together, and they want to arrest Jesus and kill him. But Nicodemus is there, and he says, Is it right for us to condemn somebody before he's even had a trial? I mean, Nicodemus isn't even really defending him. He's just saying, aren't we going to follow our own rules about this? And then, of course, the Sanhedrin uh, turns to him and says, are you one of his disciples? So he goes from an unbeliever to a questioner, and now I believe here he is a disciple. 
perhaps a secret disciple like Joseph, but he's here as well to take the body and to bury it. In fact, Nicodemus brings all of the the spices and the and the aloes and the myrrh and all the all the perfumes that are used to bury a body a hundred pounds worth he brings a lot these things are are not cheap if you remember from John chapter 12 when when Mary anoints the feet of Jesus she had a an alabaster flask full of very expensive perfume that she shatters that vase and then pours that ointment on Jesus feet and of course Judas is like that could have been sold for a lot of money and given to the poor, and I could take my cut of that as well because I was kind of dipping into the, uh, the community purse here as well. This was not cheap. This would have been a large quantity of very expensive ointments as they anoint Jesus for burial. Now the question, of course, is why is attention being drawn to Joseph and Nicodemus here? Why these two men? Why does John go out of his way to highlight these two men? I think you can come up with a couple of reasons why. One is that not all of the Jewish leaders were against Jesus. It is clear that both Nicodemus and Joseph were members of the Jewish ruling council. Not all of them were against Jesus. Moreover, not, not all wealthy men, not all men of privilege were against Jesus. Jesus is often seen uh, gathered around sinners and tax collectors, but not all of them were the outcasts of society. Some of them were members of the ruling class and wealthy. It's interesting that they're here. Where's Peter? Where's John? Where's James? Where are the rest of the disciples? These two men are here to take the body down. Not, not his closest followers. Not his most beloved disciples. You see here their quiet yet sincere devotion to Jesus, preparing his body with, with a, a king's ransom in perfumes. As we'll see in a moment, laid into a new tomb, a brand new tomb, a wealthy man's tomb. point here being, of course, though, if you are in Christ, then you are there too. Right? Galatians 2.20 Paul there says, I have been crucified with Christ. When Christ was crucified, when Christ died, I was there, Paul saying. If you are in Christ, when Christ was crucified, when Christ died, you were there with him too. We need to understand this idea of what we call covenant or federal headship. Jesus is there on the cross paying for our sins. Jesus is there laid in the tomb, dead as our representative, as the one who stands in our place, not just in the place of one or two people, but for all whom the Father has given him. He dies for all for whom the Father has given him. We were all there in Christ, dying, atoning for the sins, and being laid in the grave. Well, now we move on to the act. We see the characters, Joseph and Nicodemus. Now we see the act of the burial. Look at verses 40 through 42 again. 
Then they, that is Joseph and Nicodemus, took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden, and the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day for the tomb was nearby. So the remainder of the passage here just kind of details the actual burial of Jesus. Now when it says they, you know, again, remember, Joseph and Nicodemus, they're wealthy men. I don't think they themselves literally took the body down, touched it, wrapped it up. They probably had servants to do this. You couldn't, still as a Jew, you couldn't handle a dead body that would make you ritually unclean. You could not then celebrate the Passover, which was, uh, had, which was coming. But the process here, of course, we see in the burial was you anoint the body with all the, the spices and the perfumes and the, and the ointments there. And you wrap the body in linen strips. You use the, the, the spices to cover the, the, the stench of decomposition. And then once the body has been anointed and wrapped, it is then laid in a tomb. The Jews didn't embalm their corpses like the Egyptians do. The Jews did not bury their corpses underground like we do. If you think of, of a, another circumstance, think, of back, think back to John chapter 11 with the, the death and burial of Lazarus. When Lazarus was told to come out, he was wrapped, right? He was in the tomb for four days, so he, his, his, the stench of his decomposition was overpowering, we're told. And then we're told that Jesus was laid in a new tomb, in a new tomb, in the garden that was nearby. There was a new tomb in which no one had been laid. Uh, And the point here is, again, we're on the Sabbath day. They can't go too far, so they have to go somewhere nearby. So Joseph presumably had a tomb nearby. And again, this idea of the burial of Jesus is definitive proof that Jesus actually died. Physically, he physically died. His body was placed in the grave. This is the final stage of his, as we will look in a moment, his humiliation, right? We confess it in the Apostles' Creed. He was crucified, he died, and he was buried. He was buried. What began the beginning of this gospel with the incarnation in which we see Jesus, the eternal word, the word who was with God and was God, that word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now we see that flesh laid in a tomb, dead and buried. Paul in Philippians 2 talks about this, how Jesus Christ was obedient to the point of death, to the point of death on a cross. Well, what is the significance of all this? Because you look at this passage, it, it's not very difficult to understand, right? Two guys came, they took the body, they wrapped it up, they put spices on it, they stuck it in a tomb. That's it, right? I mean, you could read this and understand this. You don't need me to explain this to you, is what I'm saying. So we might be tempted then to read this and then want to move on to chapter 20 because that's when the good news happens, right? That's that first day of the week, that Sunday morning where Jesus is no longer in the tomb and he begins to appear to his disciples. 
He is risen, right? That's what we would say uh, on, on Easter Sunday. That's what we would say next uh, Lord's Day, Lord willing, when we get to that passage. He is no longer in the tomb. And we'll get there. Be patient. You've got to wait seven days, okay? Be patient. We'll get there. As I said, this text is not terribly difficult to understand. So is there anything more to what's going on here than just two guys taking a body, wrapping it up, and sticking it into a cave? Yes, there is more to the story. If you remember last week, we looked at uh, Jesus' crucifixion, a slightly longer passage, but then at the end of that message, we, we focused on the words, it is finished. And what that significance, what the significance of that passage was for us. What it meant, what Jesus accomplished when he said it is finished. And what it meant for us that Jesus finished his work. So is there anything significant about the fact that Jesus was laid in a tomb? And again, I would say, yes, there is. I've mentioned several times as we've been looking at these uh, passages from John 18 up till now, uh, after the Upper Room Discourse. This is Passion Week now. And I've been mentioning several times, I talk about the states of Christ. The states of Christ. He has two states. He has his estate of humiliation and exaltation. And that state is just speaks of his position, his status, his position uh, before the law, if you will. So we talk about his humiliation, how he was made low. We think of humiliation as something embarrassing. But it really just it comes from the root word humble, which is to make low. His being made low. Jesus was the incarnate, eternal word of God. Yet he became or was made low in being born in human flesh. Right? We often talk about how Jesus left the glories of heaven above. He left being at the right hand of the Father and came into this world. Think about that for a moment. The very one who spoke the world into existence broke into his creation. He stepped into his creation. Most people don't think of God like that. Most religions think of God as somewhere out there. Not a God who is imminent. Not a God who comes to us. Who visits us. We use that word a lot here in Nebraska, right? I'm going to visit with you. I'm going to come with you. I'm going to talk to you. We're going to spend some time together. That's a a good word because it comes right out of the Bible. What did God do when his people were in bondage and slavery for 400 years? He visited them. He came to them. He drew them out of slavery. What happens now to us that we are under bondage to sin and death? God visits us. But not through a prophet like Moses. He comes and visits us himself. He takes on human flesh. He leaves the glories of heaven above. He is made low. He was born to a poor woman. He was born to a poor couple. The king of heaven and earth was not born in king's castles. He was born to an insignificant couple in an insignificant part of Israel. Born, 
made low, I should say, his humiliation. He was born under the law. The very one who gave the law himself came and subjected himself to being born under the law. We talk about how he suffered, right? Suffered under Pontius Pilate. That's just a, a summary of his entire life of suffering. He suffered for us. The very one who made the creation, who spoke it into existence, who formed man out of the dust of the earth, subjected himself to suffering from their hands. Allowed himself to be beaten by the very ones he created. Allowed himself to be stricken by the very ones he created. Allowed himself to be nailed to a cross that he created by people whom he created. He died. The very one in whom is life itself was subject to death. And then we see here his burial. This is his humiliation. This is his being made low, being born in flesh, being born under the law, suffering, died, and buried. Our Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 16 draws out this meaning quite well in Lord's Day 16. And it is uh, questions 40, 41, 42, 43, 44. Question 40 says, Why was it necessary for Christ to suffer death? Because the justice and truth of God required that satisfaction for our sins could be made in no other way than by the death of the Son of God. Why was he buried? To show thereby that he was really dead. To show that he was really dead. His death on the cross, or I should say the only way that propitiation could be made was through death. The only way that satisfaction for our sins could be made was through death. Animals aren't enough. We need a substitute. Hebrews draws this out beautifully in all of its chapters, how the blood of bulls and goats is not enough to atone for sins. We need a better high priest who mediates a better sacrifice in order to inaugurate a better covenant. And this is from, we see this from Genesis to Revelation, right? This idea that death must occur in order to cover sin. We often don't look at it this way, but think about the animal skins in which Adam and Eve were covered after they sinned. They covered themselves in fig leaves. God covers them with animal skins. Animal had to die in order that Adam and Eve themselves did not die. Then you just flip a few chapters over. Think of Abel's offering to God. He offered of the best of his flock an animal sacrifice, which indicated that before you can even approach God, a death must take place. Think of the forefathers, the the patriarchs, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They all performed sacrifices. Then the Mosaic Covenant, which then sort of gave regulations to the sacrifices, gave significance to the sacrifices. All of them to atone for sin. All of them so that we could approach God. And then think of Jesus who offers himself for us in our place. 
And for those who aren't in Christ, they must die for their sins. Final judgment. It's all throughout the Scriptures. Death must occur in order for sin to be atoned for. But then, because of our union with Christ, because like I said earlier, right, Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Because of our union with Christ, by the Spirit, through faith, Christ's death is our death. His death and burial paves the way then for the death and burial of our old man. If you will please turn to Romans 6. Romans 6. I'm going to look at verses 3 through 7. In Romans 6, starting in verse 3, Paul writes, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? That word for baptized is you are immersed, you are united to Christ. Baptism is a symbol of that. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. That is what's happening here. As Jesus dies and is buried, that is uh, symbolic, not symbolic, it is, it is the fulfillment of what we will see by, our, by virtue of our union with Christ. We too then are dead and buried. That old man is dead and buried. And we are raised, as we will see, in newness of life. course have you ever wondered why when we confess using the apostles creed we confess he descended into hell that is an often uh, controversial phrase in the uh, apostles creed why is it added we descend he descended into hell the catechism again in question 44 says that in my greatest temptations i may be assured that christ my Lord, by his inexpressible anguish, pains, and terrors, which he suffered in his soul on the cross and before, has redeemed me from the anguish and torment of hell. The burial of Jesus, Jesus being placed into the grave, metaphorically speaking, is a descent into hell, is a descent into Hades, it is a descent into the grave. It is Jesus coming under the power of death for a moment. In other words, Jesus suffered the pangs and torments of hell for us so that we don't have to. One of my favorite verses in all the Psalms, Psalm 23, 4 
In Psalm 23.4, we see, I can walk through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. Right? Your rod and your staff, they come for me. The reason we can go through the valley of the shadow of death is because Christ has gone before us into the shadow of the valley of death, has conquered death for us. He descended into hell and defeats sin and death for us. Another catechism, this time the Westminster Larger Catechism in question 50 speaks of this and says, Christ's humiliation, his being made low after his death, consisted in his being buried and continuing in the state of the dead under the power of death till the third day, which has been otherwise expressed in these words, he descended into hell. Do not read this passage lightly. Do not just look at verses 38 to 42 and say, okay, he was taken off the cross and he was buried. For in these verses, we see the completion of Christ's humiliation for us. We see the completion of Christ being made low for us. His burial confirms his death and it confirms our death to sin through our union with him. Jesus was really laid in a tomb. He was dead and he was buried. This is in fulfillment of Scripture, by the way. Right? Isaiah 53, 9 says that he was laid in the tomb of a wealthy man. He was counted among the, uh, the, the sinners. Psalm 16.10 says that uh, you did not let your Holy One see corruption. Sin is what put Jesus in the grave. Not his sin. Right? He was sinless. Our sin put Jesus in the grave. He who knew no sin became sin for us and died for us. And through sin, of course, death entered the world. We die because we sin. In fact, I like the way the Catechism asks this later. It says, if then Christ has died for sin, why then do we die? Well, our death is not a death to sin. It is not a satisfaction of sin. It is a dying to sin. It is a putting off of this sin. We must die in order to be raised again. But sin is what put Jesus in the grave. And we die because we sin. Jesus died because we sin. The thing we need to see and believe is that Jesus was buried. He descended into hell to spare us from the wrath of God and the judgment of hell. Sin requires a death to atone for it. The wages of sin is death, Paul says. The wages of sin is death. And through the death and burial of Christ, then we can stand forgiven because those sins have been paid for, that debt has been canceled, uh, the blood of Christ washes away our sins. So Christ dies so we can stand forgiven. What was very costly for Jesus, suffering, death, burial, is freely given to us by grace. Do you feel the weight of these words? Do you feel the weight of this? That if Christ did this for you, if He died and was buried for you, what will He not do for you going forward? 
If Christ gave his life for you, what else will he not do to keep you in him? What was very costly for Jesus is freely given to us by grace. To all those who repent of their sins and trust in Christ alone for salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we confess Christ died and was buried, He descended into hell. These words are necessary to complete the humiliation of Christ, to complete the state of His humiliation, the state of His being made low for us. His death pays our sin debt. His burial is Him coming under the power of death, taking hell on for us so that we do not have to. But Lord, we know that for those who are not in Christ, the weight and punishment of hell awaits. We know that in Christ there is forgiveness, but outside of Christ there is only outer darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. Lord, we pray for those who do not know you, who do not believe in Jesus Christ, your only Son. We pray, Lord, that the Spirit will work faith in them and cause them to repent and turn to Christ for their salvation so that when they appear before the judgment seat of Christ, they can say, Christ descended into hell for me. Christ was buried for me. Christ died for me. Lord, we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name.